When most people talk about knowing their ABCs, they're referencing the alphabet. But here at Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA, we're talking about the ABCs of behavior. Each week, we'll discuss a topic in the world of animal training and break down the science of behavior change. One of the great things about behavior and training is that it relates to animals of every kind. So whether you're training a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, or your pet at home, this podcast is for you. So without further ado, let's talk some training. Hello and welcome to Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA. This podcast is presented by the ABMA or the Animal Behavior Management Alliance, which is a not-for-profit organization with a membership comprised of animal care professionals and other individuals interested in enhancing animal care through training and enrichment. The ABMA continually strives to advance intentional and enlightened behavior management through operant conditioning to improve the lives and welfare of all animals. If you'd like to learn more or become a member of the ABMA, visit us at our website at theabma.org. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We are so glad that you are here. I'm your host, Shane, and I am a current ABMA board member and self-proclaimed behavior nerd. For anyone joining us again on the podcast, thank you so much. We are glad to have you back and to continue to talk about behavior. The goal of this podcast is to implement one of the goals of the ABMA, which is to continue the spread of knowledge and sharing throughout the animal care field. Each episode, we will break down one topic that involves the science of behavior and animal training. We want to provide a resource for newer trainers to learn and for experienced trainers to be refreshed. Even though the content you hear in this podcast reflects the views of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views of the ABMA or the board of directors, we think that the diversity of subjects and viewpoints represented by animal care professionals from around the world is one of the strengths of this organization. Some things you agree with and others may challenge your perceptions and ideas, but we encourage you to listen to all that you hear with an open mind because you might be surprised by what you learn. Today's guest and I have been texting about a lot of the previous episodes and having some really awesome behavior-related discussions, so we knew that she needed to come on the podcast as a guest, and today's episode is called The Science is the Same, From Zoo Training to Pet Training. And May is National Pet Month, so today's guest suggested doing this podcast to celebrate that and talk all about pet training and how the science truly is the same. So I'm really excited to talk about this because so far in the podcast, we have discussed a lot of the fundamentals of training, which have generally had a focus on training in a zoological setting. However, science of behavior change works across all species and in all settings, even if it might look a little bit different. So no matter if you're training in a zoo, in your home, or on a farm, or anywhere, today's guest has a really great perspective on this. So I am very excited to have Sarah Duggar as my guest today. Thanks for joining me today, Sarah. Thanks, Shane. So happy to be here. So Sarah and I know each other because we both worked at the Animal Encounters Village at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. When I first started there, Sarah was there rocking it, doing all the animal training things. And she went on to do some really cool stuff and has a really cool journey. So, Sarah, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and that journey through the animal care and training field? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, Shane, I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually started at Columbus Zoo in food and beverage. I did not know that, actually. (laughs) Yeah. 
think it was around 2010, I was situated in the Polar Grill selling mini cheeseburgers and little hot dogs. Um, they, they didn't trust you to serve the full-size ones, just the mini no, version? the little ones. And oh, okay, okay. I did eat a lot of those behind the scenes. <laughs> I think you can say that now. <laughs> um, yeah, you're safe, you're safe. Yeah. <laughs> but in 2011, in food and beverage, they had moved me right next to Animal Encounters Village stage at the Jungle Jack Snacks, which I don't know if you remember their slushies and all of those little candy machines. That's where I first started at Columbus Zoo in my journey of just being enchanted by the animals and the animal behavior and training that I saw on that stage. I remembered all of the show times, like 11 o'clock, one o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock. I was in the archway watching the shows and I just knew I had to be on that stage up there with those animals. I have to say that is probably one of the coolest starts to a career story I have heard, not just on the podcast, but just in general. And I can't believe I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and everyone on the team at the time recognized me at the job fair. And they're like, that's that girl that's been watching us from that archway and giving us free slushies. (laughs) And it truly was my foot in the door. And that's also why I chose to work at Kalamazoo in the first place. I wanted to get my foot in the door. I wanted to see what it was like working behind the scenes at a zoo, what the zookeepers were doing, how they got that job. And they took a leap of faith. I had no animal training experience, no like professional animal care experience. And I went in as a seasonal Animal Encounters Village, learning from Bowder Stillard of all people who later in my career realized that that was a really unique experience. That was not the norm necessarily. It was very special privilege to get to learn from him and from that team at Animal Encounters. I ended up working four seasons there. It was three summer seasons and an outreach season after completing my zoology degree at Ohio State. And I did not go to Ohio State, so I'm not going to throw up those two letters. I'm sorry, Sarah. It's okay. I'm actually over it after moving to Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, you're going to get a lot of friends and family maybe sending you some angry texts after this. No, I just... What? Okay, we'll get to that later. (laughs) I'm definitely still an Ohio State fan and a Buckeye forever, but uh, my world got a lot bigger after traveling across the country and following my passions. My career led me to Colorado originally just for a full-time opportunity. I was just working as a seasonal and you know how it is as a zookeeper. You just want to get your foot in the door full-time. And It was at the downtown aquarium in Denver, working with tigers, which is my dream animal. And it was a a great opportunity, but I did end up transitioning to Denver Zoo to work with the ambassador team there. Also took the living and learning with animals course through Dr. Susan Friedman. And that was a pretty life-changing course for me to take. I've audited it almost every year. It's just such a fresh perspective and She has such an amazing way of describing the science of behavior and applied behavior analysis into animal care. She is able to explain behavior in a way that's so digestible and makes so much sense. And I just strive to be able to speak like behavior as fluently as she does. 
Denver Zoo was a really great opportunity for me. Uh, it was also my first introduction to ABMA where I presented a paper on some of the training that I did at Denver Zoo with a prehensile tailed skink who had been biting hands when hands reached into her enclosure to pick her up and create her for programs or husbandry. She learned the skills of stationing to hands instead, working for her favorite fruits like cantaloupe and uh, honeydew and banana. Also presented on the fennec fox who would flee from keepers when they arrived, but she also needed to cooperate for uh, programs. So she learned some voluntary harnessing and that was a really great way to build a relationship with her and give her a voice and ended up seeing more approach behaviors from her instead of fleeing. While I was at Denver Zoo, I was actively trying to get into Shine Mountain Zoo. Rewind, um, before I moved to Colorado, Bowder told me, hey, you got to go check out Shine Mountain Zoo if you're moving to Colorado. You've got to go there. And I did. I visited as a guest and I was absolutely enchanted all over again. It was zoo situated on a beautiful mountainside. And all of the animals had these naturalistic exhibits that the mountain created for them. And the behavior program was just as beautiful as the mountain that the zoo was situated on. The shows that I experienced when I was a guest there were so captivating and the animals were behaving as if just on their own in their exhibit space. There's, it was all protected contact training and um, they were just performing natural animal behaviors. And the cues were so subtle, you would miss them if you weren't a trainer. And the animals were just doing what they did best on exhibit. So it was really cool to see. And I just knew like, I've got to go work there. I ended up volunteering on my weekends. And then that turned into a keeper assistant position once a week. Uh, it was an hour and a half drive from Denver for me. So it was a lot of travel time, but my heart was really invested. And then eventually I got my true dream job in the zoo field, working with tigers again with Chewy, who was at Animal Encounters Village. And I was in the Asian Highlands region with all of the cats from Asia, as well as the Rocky Mountain wild animals, which was really appropriate because all of those species were native to the Rocky Mountains, which is where Shrine Mountain Zoo was situated. After about 10 years in the zoo field, I was ready for the next challenge. Uh, I will say it was uh, the hardest decision I've ever had to make was leaving the zoo field. And... I ultimately just needed to move towards my own reinforcers. And I realized that this information that we have from the zoo side of animal training could actually really help a lot of people. And I decided to move over to pets. So uh, Karen Pryor Academy had a dog trainer professional program as the six month course um, to receive certification. And I got to partner with my own dog, Sophie, who's an Australian shepherd the whole time, which was by my side as I was transitioning from zoo to pets. We ended up driving to New Mexico together and she passed her uh, test with 100% score. And we both became certified at the end, which was really cool. I was taking on clients throughout the certification process and um, learning that I could really do this and that all of the skills translated well 
went full-time with my business, Good Dogging Company. It started in Colorado, recently moved to Columbus, Ohio, and I've been having so much fun teaching the community about effective and ethical teaching strategies with their pets. Been working mostly with dogs. Uh, the cats make my heart happy. I'm deep down inside still a cat person, uh, but I'm really excited to, to keep dreaming bigger. You know, I'd love to help parrots, and reptiles and small mammals, big mammals, just, you know, in the zoo field, we, we learned how to train them all. There's so much more that we can do with our pets than people realize. And I can tell all of you that I have been friends with Sarah for a while and on social media. So I've seen tons of videos of you with your personal pets and some really cool behaviors. Like I think about how when my cat sits on SD and someone over like loses their mind. And I like think back to all the really cool stuff I've seen you Aww. do with your pets. And I'm like, man, they would explode if they saw some of the stuff that Sarah and other positive reinforcement pet trainers are doing. So it's a really great avenue. And I'm excited for this episode because the goal for this episode is really, and the podcast in general, is to educate everybody. I know that a lot of us that are listening to this work in the zoological field in that profession or in training to some capacity, but I bet there are some people on here that have stumbled upon this because they're just interested in training because they're starting to hear this information for their own pets. So I think this will be a really great episode for those people and for all of us because we all love animals. So I bet most of us have pets as well. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So we are going to get started with today's discussion and really talking about Sarah's unique perspective that she has about taking all these skills that you can have working with animals, learning training, and like Sarah's kind of alluded to, blowing this up. The sky is the limit with not just focusing on animals that are in human care in a zoological facility, but animals that are in human care in everyone's home. So as we get started, Sarah, I just wanted to first start by asking you to kind of explain that unique perspective that you now have with all the skills that you learned working in zoos and also what people are learning today and kind of how we can extrapolate those just not from that setting, but into people's homes and people's lives. On the zoo side, I think it's worth mentioning, at least from my experience, there is such a unique access to all of this knowledge that the average person just doesn't have. Um, we learn from experts like Dr. Susan Friedman, the NEI team with Steve Martin, Valdir Stillard, Rick Hester, who's at Shine Mountain Zoo leading the behavior program there. Ken Ramirez, who went from SeaWorld to becoming the CEO at Karen Pryor Academy. There's so many amazing models of this dialogue that we're talking about. And we're, we're so privileged to come from that journey to learn from them, because I know I wouldn't be the trainer that I am without all of these mentors in my life. But on the zoo side, there are a lot of advanced skills that we learn for behavior shaping, and it can absolutely be applied to our pets at home. I mean, my first summer in AEV, 
was such a mind-blowing experience for what animals are capable of learning and how to teach them effectively and ethically. Um, and I remember going back to my pets after that summer and lived the positive reinforcement lifestyle with them, shaped all of the behaviors the exact same way that the animals at the zoo learned. And if anything, I've learned that our pets maybe learn a little bit faster. I don't know what it is, but the behavior programs with our pets, we have so much trust built up with them. Maybe that's a big part of it and are domesticated to live with people as well, but they learn so fast and it's so reinforcing to work with them. But back to the zoo side, I mean, you look at cooperative husbandry behaviors like Shine Mountain Zoo, we did a voluntary blood draw behavior with our grizzly bears. And the, the whole behavior was a whole series of dialogue of two-way communication between the trainer and the bear and vet staff as well. We could cue each paw up to the mesh. We could cue a little bum scooch towards the mesh. And then there's a door that we could remove and their back foot would come out into our space. We could cue the touches, the pokes, the duration of the poke, all for these high value reinforcers. The bears would work for a combination of meatballs and fish, different produce like apples and sweet potatoes. And I learned a lot about how to mix up the variety of reinforcers so that it was really um, motivating for the animals to participate in a behavior that would maybe otherwise be a pretty aversive experience for them. And in the same way, we can teach our dogs to also offer their jugular vein with propping their head up and they can learn the same pokes and prods around their neck, the same duration. The reinforcers would maybe look a little different, but I have found that the bear diet and the dog diet is pretty similar in what they can and can't have, <laughs> which is kind of funny. And I also really enjoyed on the zoo side teaching natural behaviors as well. And that's something that we can do with our dogs, our cats, our companion animals at home too. It's really healthy for their behavioral repertoire to learn lots and lots of skills. For example, a tiger in the wild is capable of learning how to swim and to push prey into waterways so that they can catch the prey more easily with their big paws and their swimming. We would teach Chewy at the at Shine Mountain Zoo how to swim as well and attack a boomer ball. And in his free time after those training sessions, he would be attacking a boomer ball on all on him himself um, or all on his own. So I I don't know. It's just really natural once you start training these behaviors in the zoo setting, bringing it to our animals' homes. Um, like our cats can learn to go up and down their cat tree on cue. And that's a natural behavior and amazing exercise for them. And zookeepers have learned, or maybe I should say positive reinforcement trainers have learned how to identify all of those small approximations and the right antecedent arrangement to set their animals up for success. Um, they've nailed down cue timing and prompting reinforcement timing and reinforcement placement. These are all really helpful skills to shape these 
pretty complex behaviors. Number one, I do want to say that I don't know how we get this started, but I think bum scoot should be the <laughs> official term for that behavior. Bum scooch. The bum scooch. Yes, I think the so any vets are listening say like, can you train a bum scooch so we can do this injection trainer? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's let's try to find a way to make that happen. Number yeah. two, the whole time you were talking, all I could think about was my own experience, and I bet a ton of us that are listening to this of once we're exposed to this, we just go, why is my cat not getting doing voluntary nail trims? We just don't think about because our pets, like you said, have so much trust in us. We can, a lot of times, have them sit in our lap and we can do it. But by having that knowledge of positive reinforcement and being able to use that to give our pets at home that voice as well, it makes it to a whole nother level, which I, what you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast of really bringing this into all animals and all aspects. Well, speaking of voluntary nail trims, I've been seeing a lot of cool ways to present just the antecedent and the animals having complete control over the entire behavior with things like a scratch board that is also a treat dispenser where the dogs learn if they just scratch against the scratch board, treats come out and they're in control of the entire session, which I love. Or cats, Maybe they don't need the clippers on the nails, but they can learn to scratch on a scratch pad and file their own nails down. And we can jumpstart that with treats, but there are long-term reinforcers at play as well. That is so cool. Because I, you saying that I think is the future of zoological training as well. How yeah. do we have animals choose when, what to do, and how can we empower them to do it? We can help them maybe start that, but they're totally capable, as you just said, to do these on their own. But that's that's the whole point of our least intrusive hierarchy, right, is giving the animals the most possible control and empowerment. It's the future of animal training, absolutely. And you alluded to that earlier with the fennec fox example that you talked about, where at the beginning, it was very obvious nose, but through positive reinforcement training, relationship building, you then see the yes way more often than you see the no. And that's exactly what you're talking about, which is really cool. Yes, absolutely. I was reading an article from Susan earlier today. She said something that I, I really liked. All we have to do is ask the animal what we like them to do instead, reinforce those behaviors and small, small approximations, those behaviors will naturally replace the, the problem behavior. It just happens. That's how my, my, mic drop end of episode. Just kidding. <laughs> <I know. laughs> now, obviously anyone, including you who has worked with animals in a zoological setting understands that there is a lot that goes into training and caring for these animals. So what are some other tools and ideas that you have taken from your experience training animals in a zoo to now bring into the world of pets? So I think the enrichment programs that we learned to run with so many different species and individuals helped a lot on the pet side just to incorporate antecedents into their environment that they can practice natural behaviors with. And that's so helpful, especially I think about 
dogs who are built to shred things. And then if the only thing in their environment is a couch or baby toys or something of that nature to shred, then um, we, we have enrichment programs that are in place for shredding more appropriate items like their own toys. Um, I've learned from the zoo field how to incorporate my recycling bin into a really effective behavior program with my own dog with boxes inside of boxes inside of boxes and treats in every piece or a brown paper bag rolled up with treats inside, egg cartons, just all sorts of things like that. Um, or she also loves like an empty orange juice carton with her breakfast inside of it that she can knock around um, and just be a dog. I'm pretty sure my cat's favorite day is when I finish a cereal box and I literally just put it on the ground and it takes him anywhere from five to 10 minutes to actually fit his body in, but he's using the <laughs> natural behavior of cats can like contort their body and then he's just inside it and he's happy. He's in a tiny cereal den. <laughs> tiny cereal box, honey bunches of cats. That's so cute. I was also thinking about how with our ambassador animal experience, we walked animals around zoo grounds on crowded pathways around all sorts of people and distractions. Animals like an African serval, flamingos that were just free roaming, right? No leash or anything. Grouchy, the sulcata tortoise, walked himself from his house all the way to Animal Encounters Village across the busy plaza. Uh, we did free-flighted bird shows. I mean, we have the skills to help dogs move throughout the world with us. At Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, I was really lucky to get a lot of introduction experience or intros between deadly cats, and we were successful, and it was all antecedent arrangement. It was a practice in howdies, facilitating shared reinforcers between individuals so that they could build a relationship with each other teaching them escape routes and providing escape routes was all with uh, two groups of mountain lions and a breeding pair of amur leopards. And I've been able to help people bring their house cats into the same space or pray. I'm going to do quotes on this because it's a construct, but pray drive dogs <laughs> uh, who would be really fast to go after a squirrel and, and kill it if they could to get along with a kitten who just came into the house all of those skills have translated beautifully. And zookeepers are also skilled storytellers in conservation. They know how to tell the animal story that's in front of them to inspire a larger message that's bigger than ourselves. And that's exactly what the pet side looks like. Only instead of spreading the message of deforestation and how to help tigers in the wild, we're spreading the message of positive reinforcement training and using least intrusive guidelines to behavior change. Before you keep going, I wanted to talk on something that you just said, because I think a lot of people have experiences where they're introducing pets together that maybe doesn't go great. And those are some great examples. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by facilitating shared reinforcers? Yeah. And this is all um, inspired by Rick Hester. I learned from him. And by the way, there's a paper coming out featuring Ken Ramirez, Rick Hester, 
and I want to say maybe Susan Friedman, but I can't remember, but they're releasing a paper about introductions that's worth keeping an eye out on. Um, but the shared reinforcers piece was totally dependent on the individuals and on the behaviors that we wanted to see. So for the Amory Leopards, for example, we wanted to see restful behavior, and we also wanted to provide opportunities for natural behaviors that were contingent on being in the same space together. So that looked like providing lots of hay beds. They had a heated den that fit two leopards that they shared overnight together, which was so sweet. And then they, they loved to roll in different animal smells as kind of a scent masking behavior that we see cats do. So we would go down to the giraffe barn and pick up a bunch of hay that the giraffes had used to sleep on. And then the cats would be rolling and rubbing all around the ground. We would also arrange more distant antecedents where a restful cat is also a full cat. So before intro started, we fed them up their diets. Uh, we used that opportunity to also shape calm behavior when they noticed each other across the fence line. And it was also a predictor that when you guys are having a little date together, a little dinner date, that next up is going to be door opening. And so we were able to kind of line up a predictable path towards these shared reinforcers after the doors opened. Amazing. We weren't planning on talking about that, but I could not. I know. I couldn't resist the urge to have you go down that behavior rabbit hole. And I love that because as you were talking, I could think of what that could look like in a home too. Totally. Yes. And that's also depending on the individuals and what their individual preferences are. That was Anya and Anadir. Um, but it's interesting to see like the the group that I worked with for introducing a kitten to these dogs, the cat's smells were actually really reinforcing for the dogs. And then the cat could be up high on a tree observing the dogs um, getting treats from the owners. We're also with pets able to be a part of the intro experience in a way that we have a little more control over because we're in the space with them. With leopards, it's like open the door and we are kind of just relying on cues and things like that. But the cat smells was definitely a reinforcer for the dogs to start jumpstarting that relationship. And it created an alternate behavior to chasing the cat to nose on the ground sniffing instead. So cool. Getting I'm getting behavior goosebumps. Love it. It's amazing. <laughs> All right, back on track as we yeah. just went down that side side street of behavior. The best trainers in a community are likely found at the local zoo. And Zookeepers are well versed in the practical application of the science of behavior to animals in our care. Ken Ramirez was talking at Clicker Expo uh, 2023, saying that this is the future of dog training, being able to practically apply the science. And it's definitely, I mean, everything that I've been able to do on the pet side has been from the zoo side. and let's just say there's a huge need for this experience for the community. So Sarah just gave us a lot of really 
great examples of how the science of behavior change is the same, no matter what species of animal that we are training, those science principles at their core are going to work. They're going to help push behavior forward. They're going to build relationships. So as we have taken the first half of this episode and we move into the second half, Sarah, how do you see the world of dog training and pet training in the future? Well, the needle is slowly moving in that direction. There's still a long ways to go on this side. Um, It's worth acknowledging that from the very privileged zoo bubble of beautiful positive reinforcement training and thoughtful antecedent arrangement, going into society, we're going to still be experiencing what Susan refers to as the cultural fog. She talks about it really well in her LLA class. I'll try to do it justice, but in our current society, suppressing behavior is still the social norm, unfortunately. And moving into this side of animal care I've been doing a lot of market research just to see, you know, who are the other trainers out there. And largely, um, the market is dominated by trainers who adhere to dominance theory still. I've found words on different websites that include commands, which is more of that one-sided, one-way communication There are 30-day off-leash programs that require e-collars, which is the the collar around the neck that delivers some level of shock or vibration to suppress behavior in order to keep dogs just off-leash and near the person. Um, I actually had a client come from one of these programs and her dog had a lot of repair work to do, but she told me that the trainers didn't let the dogs even put their nose to the ground to smell. Whereas when I was training her dogs, I was like, we want them smelling the grass. These are the smells in the grass are long-term reinforcers for walking next to us on a loose leash. And she's like, oh, you trainers just say the opposite things of each other. I'm like, you have no idea. Um, we see a lot of balanced <laughs> trainers too, which um, kudos for the the marketing label of balanced training because it sounds so beautiful. Um, but it does imply that there's a combination of punishment as well as positive reinforcement. Um, local classes recommend suppressive behavior tools like short leashes and tight collars in order to suppress behavior uh, and are oftentimes blaming the animal. We also still see in our mainstream media, trainers like Cesar Milan, who are regarded as an expert and featured on reputable sources. So we have a ways to go. I, I see the future of of animal training on this side to mimic a lot of what I saw on the zoo side one day and for this information to be a lot more mainstream to get away from labeling animals you know to write off behavior as something inside the animal 
uh, like the dog's barking because he's territorial or because he's reactive, stubborn, manipulative, um, whatever word somebody chooses to use. And instead, maybe one day people will learn how to focus on what the animal is doing instead and how to operationalize the behavior. We know behavior doesn't occur in a vacuum. There are precursors to the behavior, the antecedent, there are outcomes to the behavior, which is the consequence. And the, the ABCs are such a valuable tool just to get the baseline data about what the, what is actually going on to understand our animals better. Um, and to also ask ourselves that really valuable question of what we want the animal to do instead and, and how to get there definitely takes skill. So I think the more skilled positive reinforcement trainers that we see in communities, the faster that needle is going to move. Um, it's basically right now, I'm just, I feel like I'm doing this door-to-door -door grassroots campaign <laughs> for positive reinforcement. Um, and then simultaneously between clients, you know, I see a cop in my rear view window and I'm like negative reinforcement and, you know, working to avoid punishment. And I'm like, well, this is the society that, that our clients are living in. And so um, it gives me a lot of empathy for them. I think they do just want the best for the animals. They're seeking expert advice. They're investing in the time for this training. And uh, we just, we need more trainers out there doing this work. One thing that is really cool about both of these professions, this profession line, is that it is science-based. And in science, we are constantly learning. We're improving and we're learning what we thought was great before. There is a better way forward. And I know we see that in the zoo profession and also in pet training. So with that history, Sarah, how can we, all of us together as a training community, help to and most effectively push these conversations forward into the future? I was talking to one of my Karen Pryor Academy instructors about how they've experienced the, the dog community evolving over time. And they said 20 years ago that their clients needed persuaded to use treats at all. And that's not even really the case anymore. Um, so that's a really good sign that progress is happening, even though it can feel really, really slow sometimes. Um, and people are seeking trainers that are using the most positive, least intrusive methods. They just don't necessarily have the vocabulary for those behavior change plans. So there's there's just a lot of room for education still. And leaning on our hierarchy that Susan pioneered from the child care field into the animal care field has been the most effective conversation uh, resource, I guess, um, just because we can get a behavior using punishment, you know, um, going back to our experience working with parrots, um, we learned how to ask a parrot to step up to lift their foot, and then our hand moved forward, and then the parrot stepped on the, 
onto the hand and then they received a treat. Whereas in the past, maybe the toes were pried off of a perch in order to get the parrot onto the hand. And that's where we know effectiveness is not enough because if the only goal is to get a parrot on the hand, then yeah, you can achieve it. But um, we have this ethical oath to do no harm and to consider the learner's experience in the training process. And I think the more education that we can provide to the public with this credible science-backed information, the better. And I just want to highlight something you just said that was really, really powerful when you said effectiveness is not enough. If that, this, if this episode could have a second title, I think it would be that. <laughs> I love that. Well, go read Susan's paper about it also. Because, <laughs> I will. So yeah. a little backstory, Sarah is constantly actually <laughs> texting and goes, have you read this paper yet? And she sent it to me. So I, I will. It. And I appreciate it. <laughs> It's so good. And all of the listeners to behaviorworks.org is where a lot of my uh, resources come from. It's where I've refreshed myself um, with this information. And um, yeah, because the education side is going to be a learning curve for zookeepers, 100%. And this is, it's such an exercise in teaching behavior 101, translating the science free of jargon because positive reinforcement is just as much of a label to my clients as the word territorial might be. It's vague. They don't know what it looks like. And uh, early on, I found the more that I tried to explain positive reinforcement, the more labels from the scientific words that I was using. And I really need to, to take a step back. It's been such a practice in my definitions. And on the zoo side, I was just getting to a place where I was like, okay, I can I can speak behavior, I can keep up with the trainers, and now it's really taking a step back and can I describe what I'm talking about in terms that the average person can understand? And it's gonna be a journey that I think is career long, quite honestly. Side note, I can't recommend crucial conversations enough for same, same. Yeah, I, I heard about crucial conversations on the zoo side and helped with uh, talking to other trainers with different backgrounds. Um, the book Reading It Back Now with clients has a totally new application. So I just, yeah, definitely recommend that read. Um, and with the conversations, our clients are also a learner that's in front of us, right? And just like the animal learner, we want to avoid punishing them for any choices that they're making. I think it's just something I didn't totally expect when I first started on this side of pet training, um, how I would feel seeing someone use an aversive method to try to control behavior and really calmly pausing and reflecting and thinking about the next move before responding, which is exactly what we teach a lot of the dogs to do on these walks. We're like, hey, I really understand that you hate that dog and you would love to bark immediately, but let's take a breath, 
process the stimulus and let's move away for a second and, and reassess the environment. And it's the exact same with the clients. Um, and then teaching the clients alternate behaviors as well, because it's not enough to just tell them not to do something. They're left there thinking, well, what do I do instead? Right? Just like the animals. Being able to identify the skills that the client in front of you needs to learn and practice and experience, catering training plans towards their success with the animal is kind of the name of the game. The animals will reap all of the benefits by the client learning these skills. And once the client accesses the reinforcers on the other side of two-way communication, the animal is able to teach them way more than I will ever be able to. Also extrapolated back into the zoo field that people that are coming in with less experience by teaching those people all those skills that you just talked about is going to then allow the animals to teach them more than we can and ultimately is going to give those animal care professionals, a more fulfilling career, and just as important, if not more, giving animals way more empowerment choices, the ability to act behaviors and have that voice that you've said multiple times throughout their life. Yep. And then in turn, the clients also have more choices. They have control in their own ways that isn't just about suppressing behavior and an amazing relationship with their pet. There's so many reinforcers at the end. Um, oh, I wanted, I wanted to share some client quotes. Yes. So these are my reinforcers, the light bulb moments that happen that I didn't even need to say to them. Um, so one client said, as she was walking her puppy on the leash and the puppy's just kind of casually smelling all the smells in the grass, whereas before the puppy had totally um, frozen when the leash was attached for whatever reason, she said, wow, so positive reinforcement really is the way to go, huh? And that was a client that had gone through an e-collar program previously. Um, I had another client who, after having success teaching her dog to go up and down the stairs, um, want to become a positive reinforcement dog trainer someday. There was another client recently, um, we had an amazing conversation at the end of some big improvements with her dogs. Uh, she realized that there was an art to animal training. She also said um, that she was learning how to do her job better be from learning with her dogs at home. And I thought that was so cool. That's amazing. It's really cool too, because the zoo guests, it kind of felt like there was always a barrier between us and them, sort of, not physical barrier, but there was like a guest service element. Um, and on this side, I feel like the relationships feel so much more authentic. Um, it's been really cool, really genuine conversations have come about. And 
I just remember that when they call someone seeking help, they're in such a vulnerable position. They're really struggling and they're just looking for the tools to do better. And all I can do is show up for them and support and empathy and build programs around their needs as well as their animals. As you were just talking about the challenges of communicating with people, especially about the science of behavior change with people that don't necessarily understand it, you said accurately, it sounds like jargon. Just like when my brother talks to me about his financial job, I'm just like, I start to glaze and I start to nod my head. Yes, yes, yes. So how can people uh, that have these similar passions, have that knowledge, come together to support each other, to help to propel all these thoughts and actions forward? Yeah, that's such a good thought. Because from the zookeeping side, we're in this bubble where we're so inspired by all of these trainers around us. We have all of the support from mentors. And then on the pet side, it's you're kind of alone if you're not joining a team. Um, so you really have to be proactive about finding a support system. That support system should be personal as well as professional. I can't recommend enough touching base with local positive reinforcement trainers in the community. It's like, you might you might think that it's competition when it's two different businesses, but like shout out to Real Dog Training in Columbus who, you know, welcomed me into Columbus with open arms when I moved my business here. Um, they've been so supportive. We had a zoo day and you showed us all of the sea lion training. We could have some really rich conversations with each other. Um, and continuing that dialogue is just so important in uh, continuing our own learning path. Um, and with that, when we're out there, you know, trying to solve all of these problems with our clients, we're not actually alone. We have so many resources from the zoo side still. I can't tell you how many wine nights I've still had with Kaylee in Heart of Africa at Columbus, the paragraph texts and videos that I've sent to Rick at Shine Mountain Zoo to get feedback. Basically, you're not alone in solving all of the problems. There's still lots of support and brainstorming on the other side. Um, and Karen Pryor Academy has a group that you are able to submit questions to and get feedback from the entire Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner audience. Um, you can also be really proactive about learning opportunities. Clicker Expo has been such a cool experience. I've been able to see a lot of the, well, I've been able to learn from some of the best trainers in the animal care field that are presenters at Clicker Expo, um, auditing LLA, having textbooks on the bookshelf just to keep learning, keep digesting this information. Uh, the more we learn, the more we can help animals and and better navigate these conversations. And I think that this, as you've said before, is a community. One of the really great things at the 2023 Joint ABMA and IMATA Conference 
there were multiple presenters about dog training and pet training. Steve White was one of the invited speakers and just talking with people. It was one of those talks that was so impactful to every single person. And majority of those people in that room were in a zoological setting. I know I met someone, Emily from Southeastern Guide Dogs. She was there with one of her guide dogs that was finishing up his training, their learning and all that stuff. So anybody who is out there and doing those pet things, we're, we are a community. We're all doing the same things and all of us can learn from each other. I'm sure there are things that you can see with a tiger that can be applied to that and vice versa. Those presentations about a couple that we have with dogs were talked about a lot because it is also a fresh perspective and helps all of us say, never thought of that. That's amazing. So as we wrap up our discussion today with Sarah, Sarah had a great idea of kind of pulling in a lot of those earlier podcast episodes that we had specifically about the ABCs of behavior, antecedent behavior consequence. We talked a lot about that. We're going to continue to talk about that with the ABCs being the smallest unit of behavior analysis that is going to be a incredibly powerful and useful tool no matter what we're doing. So Sarah, can you talk about some common functional assessments that you would have in a pet setting? The first one is pretty common across individuals, but it's definitely worth noting that our functional assessments are best for the individual that we're looking at as a way to gather information or as a way to gather data. So our antecedent is we've got a six foot leash attached to a dog and there's a scent trail ahead. The behavior is the dog pulls against the leash and as a consequence of pulling against the leash, the dog accesses novel smells. And so we have positive reinforcer to pulling against the leash, which is also a problem for people, right? So for the dog, it's no problem. They can pull all day and they can get these smells, but a dog pulling against a person isn't exactly a shared reinforcer moment between the two. Um, so this is, there's a couple of things that we can do here. One, in the antecedent, we only have a six foot leash, which is a standard leash that's sold in like every pet store. So it's really common to see people with these short leashes, not enough room to move naturally. A lot of times a longer leash fixes this issue altogether. Um, but a dog can definitely still pull against a long leash to access smells. So we can also build in the into the dog's repertoire the skill of matching the pace of the person and we still want them to access those smells so we might start with treats to teach them the behavior of walking with us and then we can fade those treats out so that the nose starts to drop towards the ground and the dog can start picking up smells with their nose as well okay here's another one that's super common antecedent We've got an open window that has access to the world and a person and a dog appear on the outside of the window. The behavior in response to the person and dog appearing is barking for the duration 
of the person and dog in view until they go away. And then we see the barking goes away with them. And so from the dog's perspective, their barking works to remove the people and the dogs outside of their window. The most success I've had with this is covering the window, a visual barrier to the problem stimulus. That way we're kind of just removing aversive stimuli from the dog's environment. They're working to remove this thing and high intensity behaviors. It's kind of a welfare concern for me to see dogs barking with that intensity all throughout the day. And so it's a really simple fix to cover the window. Um, not to say that people should live in completely walled off living rooms. You know, we still want natural sunlight in. So you can purchase frosted glass window film and cover just the area that the dog can see out of so that the people can still see what's going on outside and we can still get natural light in. Uh, those dogs typically need some skill building in just navigating the world on walks like we've talked about. And so there's sort of a, a program happening to help the dogs learn how to remove themselves from situations that they're uncomfortable with instead of having to bark to remove other people or dogs around them. I really like how you said from the dog's perspective, it worked. Yeah. It worked. It really worked. Well, and okay, Susan said something that was so mind-blowing at one of her talks. She said the illusion of being in control is as valuable as actually being in control. Amazing. So yeah, from the dog's perspective, they are in control of the situation. Here's one that kind of describes some avoidance behaviors that I've seen. And it's worth mentioning, there is a, a distant antecedent, a learning history involved with the presence of a leash, predicting a collar being grabbed in order to attach a leash. And the antecedent being a leash in hand, the dog responds by moving away from the person holding the leash and the outcome is, or the consequence is, increased distance from hands. And we can predict that avoidance behaviors when the leash is pulled out will increase. Of course, we know from our, our zoo background that we can teach an animal to lean in for things like a leash attachment, to lean in for things like a poke in the shoulder for a vaccine. And so this is um, a skill building element where we can turn that leash into a target, into a predictor of treats at the end. After the dog has learned to lean in for the leash attachment for a treat, the treats can be faded into the long-term reinforcers, which are all of the smells outside and uh, enriching stimuli that the dog can access after the leash is attached. I'm going to walk through one more that I've seen a variety of responses to. So I've got one antecedent that is the same across multiple individuals, but their responses have been varied and the reinforcers have been varied. Um, I'm going to think of one dog in mind for this one, though, with the behaviors that I saw from her. The antecedent was sitting on the couch. <laughs> So I'll walk you through my, my experience with it because um, I hadn't heard quite the full story until I saw the behavior myself and then had more questions. So 
Um, all I knew was that my clients were having trouble just being able to watch TV because sitting on the couch prompted a lot of uh, behaviors that weren't uh, very positive for them. So I sat on the couch, the dog immediately had, she had been napping. We had already done a lot of training and playing. She went and rested. So I sat on the couch right away, perked up, came right over, started biting my hands. I was like, hmm, interesting. And I stood up off the couch and watched what she did next. But after I sat back on the couch again, I'm pretty sure she just got off the couch and came towards me. She learned to then try putting her paws on the counter in the kitchen. And then she looked over her shoulder at me. And I was like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> Animals are amazing. Yeah. Withheld the reinforcer. Um which you can say ignored the behavior, but we've talked about this. I have a little problem with the word ignore um, just because it kind of implies that we're shutting off communication. I prefer to just observe. And so I continued observing kind of out of the corner of my eye. And that's um, something that I, just, I don't mean to cut you off, but we recently talked about this and I absolutely loved that idea. It's one of those things, words matter a lot. We talked about that with Vowder in episode 11, that the way we think about training is really important. And by using a word like ignore that has so many different connotations to it can be misinterpreted in a lot of different ways. I think a lot of us in your example, you could say I ignored her behavior. We know we can operationalize what you meant by that we can see that pretty clearly but other people might not be able to see that and especially when you're working with pet owners saying the word ignore could mean a lot of different things and I really really love that you say I'm going to observe mm -hmm. so I just wanted to give you some props on that for me because it was a really cool thought experiment that I also want to start changing my vernacular. Yeah. Yeah. And well, ignoring can also lead to extinction, right? Which is an invasive approach to eventually behavior being suppressed. So we want to be really careful about ignoring. So I keep that in the back of my mind when I'm thinking about, okay, this animal is responding to a cue that I don't necessarily like. I'm going to withhold for a moment just because I don't want to reinforce that really critical moment that happens immediately after behavior. Uh, but I do want to get ahead of extinction at the same time. And that is quite the dance when these animals have these existing reinforcement histories before we even get started with training. Okay, another behavior that the dog tried was coming over, grabbing a pillow off the couch, running away with it, and then pausing. So I had lots of hypotheses about what the reinforcers were, but I did follow with my clients about, hey, how do you respond to these behaviors and pause on counter, get off the couch and go over to the dog and remove from the counter. Dog grabs the pillow. It's a tug of war contest. The hands, biting at the hands led to grabbing toys and then playing with toys. And so we ended up with this supercharged cue around sitting on the couch that predicted a variety of behaviors and reinforcers when we wanted restful behavior. And here's how I problem solved it. So 
I had the context now about all of the pieces of the environment that had reinforcement history attached to it. So I was able to block off the counter so that pause going on the counter was less likely or harder to do. The pillow was removed from the couch and replaced with dog toys so that if she wanted to put her mouth on something, she had toys available. Um, and then after she rested and fell asleep naturally before going to sit on the couch, I faded the stimulus of sitting down into the environment, which looked like walking towards the couch, observing the dog's behavior. She had looked up and then put her head back down. That was a cue for me to walk closer, stationed in front of the couch. She remained resting, bent my knees. She remained resting, sat down, and she remained resting. And I actually passed off the cue of sitting on the couch <laughs> to my clients. And they've been able to peacefully watch TV ever since, which is um, so, so good for their relationship with their dog. Amazing. I love that. Well, thank you, Sarah, for going through all of those and for giving us that really cool perspective. And I hope people come away from this feeling inspired and empowered themselves to continue to advocate what's best for all animals and to continue using positive reinforcement, least intrusive, effective intervention strategies in all of their training that they're doing. But to end the episode, time for one of the most fun parts. It's your training tale. So do you have a fun or interesting training story that you would like to share? Yeah, I have been really conflicted about if I should share a zoo story or a story with my own dog. You can do both if you want. Two stories? You would be the first ever episode <laughs> that does two stories, but you can. They kind of have a common theme. Well, there you go. We'll count it as one themed training <laughs> tale with two okay. parts. Okay, well, I'll start with my my dog. So um, early days when I had first adopted my dog, Sophie, I went on a trail in Colorado um, at St. Mary's Glacier, and we were hiking together um, on a leash when we were around people. Off leash, we were practicing recall because it's so important to build up our cues in these new environments. So throughout the hike, I'm calling her over to me. She's getting a treat and then she's getting released back to the environment, which is another reinforcer for coming over to me. Um, so we're practicing and practicing get to the trailhead and we go to take a photo. I set the leash down um, because it was just kind of hard to navigate all of the rocks. Got the picture and then went back to find the leash and the mountains ate it. Like it was gone. I could not find it. And I had a whole trail hike back to the car that was probably a mile long. So the good thing about St. Mary's Glacier is that there's lots of different trails. So I could choose a trail that was away from people. And I was like, okay, I cannot run out of treats, but I still need to be practicing this recall throughout this hike back because that cue is so important. I know that it is. And we're practicing, we're hiking. And then all of a sudden a chipmunk comes scurrying out right in front of us down a 30 foot cliff off the side of the mountain. And Sophie is gone. She goes, all I see is her little tailless butt down the mountainside. And I know it's not good time to cue. She's 
in a, a hot chase with this chipmunk. I kind of go to the edge to see what's up and she's moving away and I go, Sophie. And she skids on this little narrow ledge and comes up the mountain back to me and I give her a treat and we keep moving. I just had a mini heart attack from that story. I know. And it was very punishing to lose the leash. I've never set a leash down ever again. What a mistake. But it's so important that we have these highly charged cues for the times that we really need them. Which leads me to my zoo example that I wanted to share. <laughs> so, okay, I had... <laughs> Because we want well-established cues and a rich reinforcement history with our animals' behaviors, right? Cool. Um, no, this isn't going to include a mountain? No, well, it's a mountain lion. On oh, okay. So there's lots of different, lots of themes that go together in this one. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So there's a mountain lion, Coda, that I worked with. Um, at the time, he was just an adolescent. He was under a year old. He was a really rambunctious kitten. Um, and there was this really snowy, icy night that occurred. Um, and the next morning, I went in to do a check on him. And he is such an enthusiastic participant in training sessions. Like he's there as soon as he hears the keeper's keys. And he was not showing up. And I'm just like, oh, that's a red flag. Like, where is Coda? And he was um, avoiding walking on a log to come over to me that he had historically had no problem walking across and balancing on. Um, it turned out he had a limp. With that limp, he still stationed, or he um, shifted inside. He had a really strong shifting cue. He still had to navigate a lot of terrain to come in, but he made it inside, which was perfect. Um, and then he had already learned a voluntary x-ray behavior. Uh, one of the keepers, Courtney, had she had designed kind of this area in the dens where x-rays could happen, even though we have lots of metal mesh otherwise. And so with the help of Plexi, um, we we're able to ask him to do his x-ray behavior. So with this limp, he goes into the, the chute and he rolls over on his back and he holds really still for his x-ray. And the image shows a broken femur. It was wild. I'll have to show you the picture after this. No, I just realized no one can see him. My mouth literally <laughs> about hit the floor. Yeah. Crazy. I cannot, he, animals are so incredibly resilient and I just, I can't imagine how painful that was. Um, and then the next day or that, yeah, I think it was the next day we had some specialists come in, some surgeons from CSU, uh, Colorado State University, um, their vet staff does this sort of procedure. And I had to ask him to line up for a voluntary injection with a broken femur. And he did. And he he put his hip, not as smoothly against the mesh, obviously. Um, after getting the poke, he walked himself into the crate, let the door close. He fell asleep peacefully. And then he was able to be on his path to healing. And it was just so seamless because we had this awesome reinforcement history built up prior. If that doesn't do justice to the power of reinforcement history, I don't know what does. And relationships as well. Yes, absolutely. Wow. We would have never been able to get that if we were using any force or coercion. Effectiveness isn't enough. Yeah. It would not have been enough in that scenario for sure. 
Yeah, so true. That is a perfect way to end today's episode. And this, of course, just scratches the surface. So if you have any questions at all, please reach out on any of the ABMA social channels or by emailing abc at theabma.org. We love to hear from you because this podcast is made for all of you. So if you have any questions at all or topics, please let us know and we will work on getting those covered. But before we go, Sarah, if anybody has any questions for you, there's anybody in the Columbus area that would like to get your input and maybe become one of your clients, how can people reach you? Uh, so they can go to gooddogandcompany.com and I have a contact link there or you can email me at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H at gooddogandcompany.com. And if you are on Instagram, go follow Sarah because she's really upped her game and has some really cool content that she's been putting out there as well. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're welcome. And thank you once again, Sarah, for joining me. James McAleb for our theme song, Ayla on the Beat, sung by the ever-talented Ayla of the Sea Lion, all of our ABMA members, and to you for listening and joining in on the Behavior Conversation. If you aren't already a member, please consider joining the ABMA by visiting theabma.org as we all strive to better the lives of animals around the world. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and join us next week on Animal Behavior Conversations as we continue to talk about behavior. In the meantime, thanks for joining us and happy training. my gosh, I didn't even look at my hair. (laughs) It looks amazing. (laughs) I don't even know what happened. Can you do a headband effect? (laughs) That's not even helpful. Okay, good thing I know you. (laughs) It's like a boy band. Yeah, I'm going to pretend like it's a style. Yeah, I think it is.